Welcome, welcome, listeners. If you're searching and sniffing with a penchant for the written, you're in the right place. That's right, scribes and scribblers. You're back with us at the Nib section, official podcast of Fountain Pens Oceania. Since any fountain pen is a controlled leak, think of us like wiki controlled leaks. Uh, the topic of talk today is maybe one of our most requested topics in the forums and on the interwebs. Vintage. No, we are not talking cab savs, but we are talking in the lab with Tav. We're talking <laughs> vintage pens with an extensive panel. Uh, first, already mentioned, the triple bold Iron Grouch himself, Tav. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Next up, joining us uh, through a series of tubes is our North Side Connect, the Novocastrian Castellan, Max Schumacher. How are you, Max? Love it. Good to be here. I'm great. Great, great. Uh, welcoming special guest. I did a little bit of uh, asking around for our panel today as how to describe him, but I think Barry the Barrister has been the, the best uh, description so far. Yeah, I mean, that, that kind of works. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I, I mean, all the, the information is relevant there. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. Last of all, my name is uh, Chucks Montano, and if I was a sensitive psychic, I would be a soft medium. Ladies and gentlemen, what are we writing with today? Barry, what are we writing with today? Okay, I'm writing with a 1924 Parker Jewelfold uh, Junior with a uh, italic, original italic nib. Tav. Well, today I'm writing with, it's not exactly vintage, but it's nearly there. It's a, probably a 70s Schaefer Targa Slim with a broad nib, and I'm using Schaefer Jet Black in its original cartridge. Go. Max, would you like to tell us what you're writing with over on your end? I'm also using a uh, Schaefer and a Parker. I have a uh, Imperial 4 uh, with a broad nib. Uh, I don't know the actual year of it, but it's uh, it's loaded up with Aurora Blue and a Parker 45 in the Insignia finish, which is a gold gear shade. And I've got a um, standard 14 karat medium and some Aurora Black in that. Uh, I have recently moved uh, my Pilot uh, 92 over to Quentin in Melbourne and I've replaced it with a Franklin Christoph uh, FC20 in my blue with um, an EF SIG uh, with a... It's just a steel nib to appease our um, our sound engineer. No, I'm, I really enjoy it. I really the EFSIG. It's uh, very nice to write with, and I am leaving it all over the paper and occasionally my hands because I throw my bag around. What's an SIG? Uh, it's Stub Italic Gradient. I think it stands for. So buying and using vintage pens today. This this gets talked about a lot. Often we um, have had trouble delineating what's uh, vintage and what's not, and that that conversation changes depending on who you're talking to. But uh, let's start off with our mailbag and reviews. We've got an email from Urban Hafner in Germany. It says, hey there, my name is Urban and I'm a listener and a fan of your podcast from Germany. It's really great to hear people from the other side of the world share the same obsession. I'm also the man behind the website called fountainpencompanion.com or fpc.inc with a K for short, where you can track your ink and pen collection as well as which ink is in which pen. It's still in its early days, but maybe it's something that you and our listeners may find useful. Cheers from Urban. Several of our friends from the BYOB Pen Club podcast are on Fountain Pen Companion. There's a little shout out to it. Do any of you guys use the website to track your inks or pens? Uh, one of our audio text Denise's put her hand up. Uh, anybody else on the panel? I know. Well, uh, what what uh, system do you use to keep track of it? I I, gen I generally do like a mass re-inking over like one day, and so there's usually a new page about a third of a way through through a book where um, I'm writing a whole bunch of scrolls and uh, just rewriting the the names of pens, make and model. 
a lot of there's a lot of that. Not, not a lot of actually productive writing. Uh, anybody else? System. Uh, oh, system. Yeah. You people use systems. I just I just <laughs> use it till it runs out, and then sometimes forget about it. I just do it as I feel like it. You know, like oh, I haven't used that pen in a while. Ah, oh, it's got full of dried ink. I guess I have to soak it. Mm-hmm. That's my well lack of a system. Yeah, Tav has also advised us on um, pen care before as well. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, hey, my advice is sound. Just because I don't follow it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm with Tab on that. I, yeah. I, I only use, because pretty much all my pens are vintage, so I only use one pen at one time. Right. And then once I've used it, I flush it out and I put it back where it belongs. Cause and you rotate around. You don't want, generally, to keep vintage pens not being used full of ink. It's okay. not good for the pen. All right. Max? Yeah, I, I'm with the other two. I uh, I don't have a system. It's right. either inked or it's not. And if it's inked, it's in use. And if it's not inked, it's not in use. I think you were saying before as well. You have a you have a problem with like keeping all of your pens uh, inked with the same ink as well. Oh, that was more a testing thing for a bunch of um, recent prototypes. I wanted to make sure that the um, nibs on my custom pens were working properly, but and to work consistently with a standard ink. So if I had four pens all inked up with a raw black and then a benchmark, five pens inked up with a raw black. So you had a control. Yeah, it's a it's. A tiny bit of scientific ma- uh, method to some madness. Sure, sure. I'm going to interject a little bit. This is Diana. I had a look at Fountain Pen Companion, and it's not exactly what you're describing. It's more of a database to keep track of what inks you have and what pens you have. And people who have a public profile on Fountain Companion, they can compare their collections with other people's. And I think they have a list of like a ranking. Mainly it's to count how, what inks you have to facilitate swapping and sampling and things like that. And also, you know, um, it plays on a competitive edge. So there's like number one person who has the most samples of inks. Right. And they, they're ranked in okay. the database. It's, it's more like that. All right. So yeah. it's, it's, it's an accrual system. Well... Guys, this is going to be a pretty light podcast for me on this topic because I do not have a vintage pen, but we have the, uh, we have the right people here to fill in the topics. But buying and using vintage pens, there's a lot of, uh, where, where does, where do we start, guys? You know, where, 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 what's a good make and model to start from? Um, that's, that's going to be the first one I'm pitching out there. Tav is, uh, shrugging at me confusedly uh, as if why I would ask on this question. Well, this question. I suppose it's just like saying, what's a, what's a nice model of pen? It depends on what you want in a pen. Do you mm. like a larger one or a smaller one? Do you like a broader nib or a finer nib? Do you prefer one that's made of celluloid or made out of ebonite? Do you prefer one that's colorful or subdued? I mean, it all depends on your personal preference. So at least one kind of descriptor would be needed before you could make it, we could make a recommendation really. Mm-mm. So I think you've, you've said before that your first pen was a, from, was from your grandparents? It was a gift. That wasn't a vintage one no. though. That was, okay. that was a, that was a, a modern Waterman expert. Right. Well, my grandfather did give me his Parker 51, which was the first thing he ever bought when he arrived in Australia. Mm-hmm. He got straight off. The, uh, the ship that he was on, mm-hmm. first thing he bought was a Parker 51 in Burgundy in a set with a pencil. And he just recently gave that to me because he'd like to have that to, he'd like to have that, re- um, restored. And I'd like to send that to perhaps, uh, Ron Zorn or somebody in the United States who is really, really good at restoring it so they can make it pristine. Right, right. Parker 51s get talked about a lot. What about, what about you, Barry? Do you ever stand in if someone asks just, Hey, look, I'm, mm. I'm looking at a vintage pen? What would I recommend? The period from the 1920s through to the 1940s, largely from the United States, is 
generally regarded by collectors as what's called the golden age of pen making. It was when fountain pens really came of age, they became mass produced and they were very usable and they were arguably the most beautiful that they ever were and that they've ever been. So I would strongly recommend that as an era of fountain pen collecting you should get into. Of 20s, all to, to 20s to the 40s. Right. You had the main companies that were dominating the scene, both in America and worldwide, were Parker, Waterman, Schaefer, and a company that then died, which was called Wall Eversharp. And they were, yeah. they were what's called the big four. And a lot of people might not realize that Parker, Waterman, these were American companies. They're as American as they get. People often think of them now as British or French, but they weren't. They're American. Yeah. I think Parker, Parker 51s as, as well. They get, they get talked about. Yeah. That was, that was really the kind of almost the crossover, I think, from when between kind of fountain pens and ballpoint pens. It was this pen that had a hidden nib. It was, it was enclosed and it was a pen that was, it had virtually eliminated any problems that existed with fountain pens it pretty much did not leak it could write whenever and however you wanted you could take it on a plane you could throw it in your bag yeah it it was the epitome really of the fountain pen yeah yeah maxi what about you uh max is uh probably one of the younger guys in the fountain pens oceania group but uh, does a lot of work on pens and um, definitely does a lot of uh, looking into vintage. So uh, what, are, what are your thoughts, Max? Where, where would... Oh, I've got to agree on the, uh, on the topic of the, the pens of the 30s are definitely some of the best. And I've got a, as I'm now a uh, student of industrial design, got a shout out to the beginnings of industrial design as a practice, especially in relation to pens. Henry Dreyfus and Raymond Lowy's work with um, Wall Eversharp, with uh, the Fifth Avenue, for example, is a beautiful, amazing pen one of the best of all time the Schaefer balance first streamlined pen ever made came out of that period uh, we've got things like the wall of sharp doric um, some lovely art deco aesthetics with that uh, 12-sided facet design and the amazing cap bands on those things there's really so much um, and so many different places that you could start with and uh, just explore from depending on your tastes so I've totally got to agree with Barry there. What are, what are we looking out for when we're talking about a vintage fountain pen? Like, how are we checking for condition? How are we making sure that it's still usable and it's not just something that someone's dug out of a uh, dug out of a desk somewhere? Well, I mean, that's that's kind of the risk that you're going to take if you're going to buy on a place like eBay. Then that's going to be the risk that you run, unless you're buying from a place from from a shop that's advertising them as being restored. Um, and then, of course, if you if it arrives and it hasn't been restored, then eBay will hopefully protect you, or whatever website you're buying from will hopefully protect you. But if you buy from a website of either a person who restores pens or a company that restores pens, that's where I would tend to recommend. So companies like Peyton Street Pens or Nibs.com or uh, vintage pen sellers would restore them, so you can you, you'd have that peace of mind. And also they tend to be more reliable in the way that they describe pens because they're quite consistent. They'll have sort of sections in which they describe the, the condition of the nib, the condition of the body, the, any marks that might be on there, how it writes, that sort of thing. And any, and any caveats, you know, oh, this bit is a little bit, you know, the, the piston's a little bit stiff or uh, the nib's a bit squeaky or something like that. So in, consistency is, is always key in, in the listings of sellers. In my experience with buying secondhand bass guitars, when they acknowledge flaws is genuinely when, when I'm like, okay, this is someone that is like more aware of condition 
and is not mm. just trying to sell me some like a broken down yeah. thing. And definitely pictures. If there's a place that's giving high resolution, detailed pictures of the whole pen, like Peyton Street Pens will take very detailed pictures of the whole thing that, you know, from all sorts of angles. So you can really see if there's a crack or a dent or a, a, a scuff um, or anything that might affect the function of the pen. Uh, those those places are very good. So those, if you're if completely new to vintage pens, I'd recommend personally that you, if you don't want to take a risk, go to a place that guarantees that their pens are restored. What about you, uh, Barry? Where do you source? Is that is that a is that an agreeable question? Can I can I ask that? Can yeah, I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was like, can I, is that like uh, asking a reporter to you know show their sources? <laughs> no, uh, no, no, no problem yeah. with that. I've gotten pens from dealers from antique stores. In fact, I bought one on Oxford Street recently. It's little kind of junky antique stores mm. kind of cool but most of the pens i get to be perfectly honest i buy from ebay because i like chasing down pens that have just kind of come from some old attic or some old desk drawer and i like to restore them myself mm. i quite like that but you max yeah i break all the rules when it comes to buying vintage pens i buy them in the stupidest of places and you have, pay you have for some it stories about about yours, I believe. Yeah, I, I bought a vintage Lamy piston filler off Etsy once, and it's a dud that's unrestorable by literally everyone I've contacted about. I bought from some bloke off Gumtree um, who turned out to live around the block from me. I've bought from overpriced antique stores and dodgy secondhand shops and eBay. I've bought things I know were totally un- as non functional as I could get and then had to send them off, such as my Schaefer Balance, which I got for 30 bucks, but I had to send over to um, Jerry Berg to get the entire back filler rebuilt. But it's it's an amazing pen. <laughs> you yeah. sound like a masochistic pen bloke. Well, it's it's more that I haven't ever been to a pen show. Sydney will be my first pen show. And for what I'm looking for, I am willing to take the stupid risks. That's all right, Max. You're young. What's, uh, yeah. What's your strike rate? Um, yeah, what, yeah, what is the... I've only had one dud, one real dud. Which right. was the Lamy. We kind of touched on my, my next question, which was going to be where to buy. But uh, I know that there's a kind of apprehensive anxiety about vintage pens. And I think it's the word vintage where people are like worried about it being fragile uh, or requiring delicate handling. Um, is there any like special care that you need to use and maintain a vintage pen? I suppose it depends on the condition of it. Some some pens are made of materials that might start to degrade over time. And if that is the case, then yeah, some of them might simply benefit from being owned and not used. And I know a great deal of people that just collect them to have them as yeah. a display piece. They keep them in a, you know, in a, in a display case and they don't ink them. They don't handle them because they're worried that it will further degrade the material. Mm. And that's fine if that's what they'd like to do. Um, if, if the material has started to break down then there are steps that can be taken to minimize that you know mm. using certain inks you know, making sure that you use inks that are ph neutral and and not not subjecting it to any shocks or anything like that yeah. i've heard concerns about that uh, a lot with the parker vacuumatics like opacity for for some of the ones that have been mistreated a little bit yeah i mean when you've got a a, a transparent pen you know, the ink that you use in it can definitely affect how transparent it is i mean I'm, i've not got a huge amount of experience with vacuumatics but mm. special care wise just treat it with the respect that you would any other item that is 70 80 90 100 years old mm. so you wouldn't throw your grandma in your bag without a something to protect her so don't you know put, put, put a put a nice vintage pen in your bag yeah. with a nice leather case or nice 
box that's padded and soft and comfortable for it. I think you you're know. overestimating the concern I have for my grandmother. Um, I just want to get the lips. So you can put her in your bag, provided there's something to protect it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. If it's a really big bag. <laughs> my grandma's very small. Yeah. Hey, grandma. So I've got one of those like dog backpacks for you to bring your dog around cycling. And so I would just need to scale up. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah you, 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 get a, you get a tongue lashing afterwards. But, you know, as long as there's something to protect her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'll get her. I'll get her goggles. It'll be fine. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Max, on your end, how have you taken care of your dad, Lemmy piston filler? Well, depends. I don't own many celluloid pens. I own one, and it's it's a celluloid that's off gas all the nitric acid it can. So it's it's not likely to to degrade and crystallize in the same way that something. Um, some of these celluloids might. Um, I don't own many ebonite pens, but the one I have is as oxidized as it can get, so I'm just avoiding any further contact with water and sunlight for that. But the most majority of my pens are um, polystyrene, as that was the, one of the more popular plastics used for some of these pens in the day, and it's it's as durable as any modern acrylic, really. So due to what I've accumulated, I don't have to be as fussy about the way I treat my vintage pens as I might be, as I might have to be. If I collected something else. Well, what about you, Barry? Is there anything specifically you do? Or- uh, I'll just make a few points. If you want very practical, not likely to break, try something from the 1940s onwards. They're very practical. I don't think they look as good, but, you know, Parker 51s, a lot of the Schaefer snorkels, they had metal caps. They didn't break as much as celluloid caps, and they're just very practical. Second point is, if you go back a bit earlier, you're dealing with pens made out of celluloid. It's a beautiful material. It's often handmade, but don't post the cap. Well, if you're going to post the cap on the back of the barrel, be gentle. I think the phrase I heard once was, put it on like an old man putting on his hat. And be careful about what inks you use. Use something gentle, something that's fairly innocuous, and if you're going to then start using something even earlier made out of hard, hard rubber, really probably don't post the cap unless you really feel you have to. Avoid putting the pen in sunlight. Avoid putting the pen in water. And with all of your vintage pens, after you've stopped using them, get rid of all the ink and flush them out with water. This is Diana again. I have a question for all of you, and it's more of a scene setting thing. I'm not someone who really done a lot of research into vintage because I think a lot of listeners and a lot of people I've talked to who are fans of fountain pens, to them, vintage is quite intimidating. Getting into it, uh, first of all, because they're hard to find in good condition, that's um, user grade, that's friendly to beginners. And then you hear so many stories or you hear so much cautionary information about how you should treat your vintage Mm. pen in order to preserve it. Because I think the idea is not only to use it, but also to maintain it in a condition where you can also pass it on or that you're not degrading it in the process that you're using it. So to all of you, I'm really curious, what do you think the greatest value comes from of using and collecting vintage pens is? Is it, do you get something out of them that you don't get out of buying something that's brand new or, you know, from the most recent two decades or so? Well, there is a sense of satisfaction in using something that's, you know, nearly a century old that still works, just something that I enjoy. Um, it doesn't mean I don't enjoy using modern pens. In fact, I do use more modern pens than I do vintages simply because I use pens for work. So I'm more likely to take a modern pen into the lab than I am a vintage. But yeah, so it's, it, there is a, an element of satisfaction of using something that still works after that, that amount of time. And as Barry was also saying that 
the materials, I, I tend to quite like celluloid pens. The materials are beautiful and it's really hard to find modern materials that can compare um, and even modern designs that compare. It's very hard to find things that are like, for example, as Max mentioned before, the Wall Eversharp Doric. There are a couple of pens that somewhat emulate that that faceted Art Deco design, but there's something about the Doric that's that's unique, and and no other pen has really been able to capture that. So, so history and uniqueness. Yeah. But do you also think that because of the relatively higher barrier for entry, that you get better value from vintage pens? Is that something you could you could say? Value. Like for a similar in terms of uniqueness and good writing experience, maybe you can get some a, a really good vintage pen for under one hundred dollars. That's just not achievable in more just because there are so few people buying vintage. I think yeah. Is that I, argument I've heard quite a lot. For, like people in America, hmm. I think I've read um, a lot of them. They argue. You can get a really good vintage wall ever sharp with a fantastic nib for under fifty. Um, oh, that's that'd be. <laughs> well, if, that'd if you be, know, it'd if be you tough these skills, days. Right? If you have the skills and you're willing to look for it, then you can yeah. find that pen. You'd be you'd be lucky, you really but yes, yes, you can get a, you can really get a screener of a deal for that. But yeah, if you if you buy a secondhand wall ever sharp for fifty dollars, or you buy a for example a at retail price uh, Lamy Safari, they'll both write. But the writing experience of the Wall Eversharp will definitely be unique and it'll definitely be better. That, that being said, though, it is entirely subjective. So there are probably people out there that go, yeah, well, I'm happy. I'm totally happy using my Lamy Safari. I, I prefer to use that over any vintage pen. And that's just as valid as, as my enjoy uh, enjoyment of using a vintage. Look, I agree with what Tav said. Why do, why do I like it? Okay, here, here are the main reasons. And I'm, I'll try and make this brief. The history. <laughs> I, I like the fact that every now and then when I'm writing with a pen, I can look down and, I, and I'm reminded of the fact that it was made in 1928, that it has sat around on a desk or wherever it's been. I mean, goodness knows what the history of it was. It's obviously made it across continents. It's made it through two, well, one world war and all sorts of history. I love that. I love the history. I love thinking about when it was made, what the world was like when it was made and what it's been through. But believe it or not, I I like them for a philosophical reason because I don't like a world. This is going to get very deep. I don't, I don't, don't, one thing I don't like about the world is Everything is made for 60 seconds to be used and then thrown in a bin, okay? These pens are 80 years old, and yet they're just as good to use, possibly even better, than most of the pens you can buy on the market. So why make more stuff that can just end up in landfill? And these pens hark back to an era, and and I really love this. They hark back to an era when things were made by honest people who were often in their job for 20 or 30 years, okay? They, They adored the job that they were in. Every part of these vintage pens from the 20s was made by hand, and they were made in an era when things were made for life um, and many of the vintage pens were made with a lifetime guarantee in other words they made it and they sold it to you and they said this will not break and if it does we'll give you a new one and you know what guess what 80 90 years on they're still writing it's quite beautiful it's ro- it's totally romantic uh, actually I, th- I think that's that's quite a lovely sentiment the whole idea of even with modern pens now I mean most modern fountain pens are not designed to be thrown out um, I'm just looking at a, a die holding her 
her uh, Dupont Olympio, which is most definitely not designed to be thrown out at any point. But still, it's it's been made. Resources have been consumed to make it. So I, I think that's a really great sentiment that these have already been made. Um, you're not creating a demand for anything new. It's already been done. So you're not putting any more demand on the earth than has already been placed. Yeah, it's it's a it's it's the ultimate recycling, really. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan because of the the innovation and technological prowess that is still yet to be matched or uh, or advanced. Something such as Schaefer's innovation. Schaefer, in my opinion, at their peak, were the greatest in terms of new filling systems, new new materials, new methods of, of manufacturing. And honestly, some of the best modern pens are still catching up to what Schaefer did in the 50s. ASC's um, pneumatic filler is almost, if not totally identical to Schaefer's touchdown method. Right. Schaefer's had their eye on some filling systems recently, haven't they, Max? Well, that was um, actually a hoax. Coned were flabbergasted that uh, someone had said that they were trying to license, that, that Schaefer were trying to license the bulk filler. And ultimately, the bulk filler is not 100% an original design anyway. It's a um, slight modification of a design from 1890 or something. Okay, well, that, that's a sort of a touchstone for us to get started on buying and using vintage pens. If you're like me and you uh, haven't braved the icy deep just yet, perhaps by the end of the year, by the time we have episode, I don't know, 30 something. Hmm. Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll have something to talk about. But we do have an interview coming up uh, that we'll cut to in a second. Before you go any further, I did listen to your podcast, Re, with Leo, Re Japan. Mm. Fantastic. You did all the homework for me. <laughs> did you know the International Tokyo Pen Show is on September 29, the inaugural one? I did not know, actually. September 29. Where was this information? It's at the Metropolitan Trade Center. Um, so supposedly it's their first massive pen show. Oh, uh, okay. Anyway, I just thought I'd let you know. I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of Japanese pen shows. I oh, know, David. You're a fan of Parker 51s, right? And the rest. And the rest. Okay. I haven't quite been bitten by Japanese pens yet. Consider yourself lucky. <laughs> Good. Uh, welcome to the nib section. Today we have two special guests from Melbourne joining us, uh, and I'll let them introduce themselves to talk about their journey into pens and, in particular, their niche focuses. Costa, David. Hey, Hi. guys. Hi, Sharon. Hi, guys. David here. Uh, Costa Kambukos here. Uh, David Van Kolenberg. And it's a pleasure to be on as guests on the NIP podcast. Really and, looking forward to it. And I'm uh, Pen Collectors of Melbourne. That's my official uh, uh, name. And is that on uh, Facebook or Instagram? No, I, I don't have a website or anything like that, but that's my official uh, company name. Pen Collectors of Melbourne. Yeah, you can find me on Facebook as well. Okay, we will link that in the show notes. And so maybe, David, if you want to tell us a little bit about Pen Collectors of Melbourne and uh, what your specialty is and how you got into this hobby. Look, Sharon, I, I basically um, just started something. People have wanted me to start a website for a long time, but I just I work full-time, so I haven't really had the time to, to really get started into that, that field of online selling. But, I'm, look, I'm perfectly happy just to do the Melbourne Pen Show once a year, which is enough for me. Perhaps when I retire, I might start something, but 
just to give a little bit of exposure, I had I started that Facebook site, um, Pen Collectors of Melbourne. Now let me see. I I started collecting in probably late '99, early 2000, mm-hmm. and how it how it all happened was that. Uh, my father passed away and left me uh, his Parker 51 that he went university with, and uh, he also had a, a 180 set, so Parker 180 Harlequin set. And I wanted to know how much these pens were worth, so I walked into Penn City one day and I spoke to uh, John de Blasi, put me on to Terry, and, and you know he really gave me a lot of information about that that uh, Harlequin set. And I went back and I thought, wow, this is interesting. Then I remembered that my grandfather had given me a, a Mark II Parker 51 uh, in a teal, uh, custom Parker 51 teal, and I picked that up and started using it, and that got me going. And then my my first pen that I actually bought was out of a newsagent with a Parker 75. Wow. And so I'm starting to see a bit of a Parker trend through your collecting. Is that your niche area or just something that you're desperately interested in? No, to be honest with you, not really. It started off as Parker and I was determined only to collect Parker. As the years went on, uh, I've just diversified into everything, to be honest. And what are your criteria for your collecting? What do you look for when you um, purchase a new pen? Look, I basically look for value, condition, and then collectability, what I think is going to appreciate in price. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I've found at various different places throughout Melbourne and, you know, sometimes overseas, uh, I've, I've picked up and I've thought, look, that could be collectible in the future, so I'll buy it, you know, and... Sometimes I sell them, but the majority of the time I keep them. So I've got a, a you know a compendium or portfolio that holds over a hundred pens. So I've now gone into other portfolios because I've run out of space. <laughs> <laughs> wow! And so, David, do you exclusively collect vintage, or are you a bit of a dabbler in the modern pens as well? Right, I'm a bit of a dabbler. I I had a bit of a kick. A couple of years ago, on uh, on uh, Waterman Red Ripples, and or any ripple, to be honest, mm-hmm. and the Grail for me was always the number fifty eight. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was looking, and when the dollar was fairly down, it was they they were always around the two thousand dollar mark, and I was just out of out of my leg. And then when the when the dollar rose, I managed to to pick one up at a, at a reasonable price, and I think I've done really well with that. I think it started with a number five. And I bought that from a chap named Gary Lehrer. The website's GoPens. Mm-hmm. Some listeners might be familiar with Gary's website. Yes, uh, I am familiar with that one. Really sells a lot of high-end vintage, high, high-end vintage. So, so yeah, so I, I got a um, got a number five, then I bought a number seven. Bought, I bought a number seven from a guy named Jake Leventhal. It's Jake's Pens in, in the States somewhere. I don't know where he is, but... Uh, there's another chap that I used to in the UK called uh, uh, Brian Toynton. He's he's a pen Amy and got a huge selection of vintage, very very good quality stuff. And uh, I'm quite friendly with Brian. And would you recommend that people go through respected or more well-known dealers or hit eBay and go for it? Yeah, I think so. I, I think I've only bought one pen on eBay. Uh, and it, you know, it was it's it's it was a good quality. It's a Parker Dual Fold, 
That's the uh, reissue of the dual fold in the 80s, I believe it was. So uh, the orange dual fold, you know, that came in the cherry wood box. It was lovely. So since then, I haven't really bought anything off eBay. It's, ma- it's mainly uh, established websites that I know the people, usually mostly from the United States. Is that just because you trust the quality coming out of these established websites? Yeah, you can look at the website, look at the photographs, uh, the, the response on emails, how fast they come through. I've rung Brian on several occasions uh, and he's always happy to talk. So, you know, you've got to build a bit of a, a trust thing up with these people. And another uh, fantastic pen specialist is uh, Ed Fingerman out of Fountain Pen Hospital. Lovely guy, Ed. Interacted with him on a number of occasions. Bought, actually, I bought my number 58 from Ed. Oh, right. So nice. The vintage side of uh, Fountain Pen Hospital, which I've been to three times now, I think, in New York. Wow. Oscar and I are talking about New York. We've, we've got a, a, a bit of a laugh. Uh, what's the name of that place, Costa, that we both went to? Uh, oh, um, Montgomery Pens. Montgomery Pens. They've got a fantastic website with heaps of different types, anything you want, really, I mean, in, in pens. But we both went to their location, and it's just bizarre. You walk in, and it's just a tiny little stationery shop. And, and the front window is, is so pathetic. You, you just wouldn't – you'd think it was something out of the 1960s. You know, come up and say to you, introduce yourself. I'm from Australia. I love your website. Love to go and have a look at your pens, your vintage pens. And he just gave me the runaround. He said, look, the guy that runs the place is not here. He'll, <laughs> he'll, he'll be in after lunch. So I came back and then he wasn't there. And in the end, I just gave up. Uh, I couldn't actually see any of their pens. So I'd gone all that way to see Montgomery pens, and it was nothing. It was bizarre. <laughs> Same thing. Oh, look, I, I ventured out there a few years later with my uh, my fiancé, my wife now, and I had the same experience. He sent the man upstairs. He's out for lunch. <laughs> And uh, he proceeded to follow me all around the store with my wife in tow. That's right, he did. And, yeah. and I was just on the floor laughing. I, I, I didn't understand what was going on. But on his website, he has very rare stuff oh. that uh, discontinued. I mean, he, he does charge quite a bit. He does. But, I mean, I guess when you go in there and you ask for it, it's not available. It's non-existent. So we don't know where he keeps all his pens. So did you end up actually buying anything from them? I never bought anything off them. Uh, no, no, here also. I, I, no, actually, I lie. I lie. I ended up buying my wife a little car and dash, little ape for... From him in the store? Four point. He just had it in those little colourful eight four oh, nines, oh, I think. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Just as a memento for her. And um, But that was like a one-second transaction. It was like <laughs> the, the Emmy Baker found at Penn Hospital, or June Pens, who was open at the time, or Art Brown. Art Brown is another one. Was, uh, she, the, the, the wife was lovely at Art Brown. They've all closed down since, haven't they? Uh, actually, Art Browns, I believe, I read on a forum not long ago, has reopened. Uh, I'm not sure where, maybe Grand Central or somewhere. Uh, they do a little bit of stationery, but apparently it's been revived. If you, oh, if, if, if your listeners jump online and have a look. I did read it somewhere, so, mm. yeah. And then Costa, maybe following on from that, what got you into the hobby and what type of collecting do you do? My, my journey's um, probably started 
originally when I was very young, 10, 11 years old, and uh, our local GP, Dr. William Kimber, who's retired now, he was an amazing pianist. Uh, I used to go when I was sick, mum would take me, and I was besotted with this instrument that he had in his hand uh, when he would write out scripts and then turn them over and, and blot them. Um, and it was the Parker 51. Uh, because every time I'd go there, we'd talk about pens, and you would find it fascinating that a young guy would be into them. As the years went on, obviously, I grew up. I used some shade for ballpoints at school, which I nicked from my brother. And then in my early 20s or late 20s probably, I bought my first fountain pen from Penn City, from John de Blasi, mm. and that's how I met David. So that's how our friendship – so now it's going on to about 16 years, I'd say. Is it that uh, long? Yeah. Oh. I bought, I bought a, a Parker, and from there I discovered online, started uh, – I found Fountain Pen Network, you know, spent numerous hours on that, found classic Fountain Pens, John Monashaw, uh, Richard Binder or Binder um, was a big, you know, mm. big fan. I'm very big into nib customization. So nearly all my pens, and there's probably about 40 now maybe, uh, which I'll get into in a sec, 90% have been sent back to the States for either Richard, John, the great Mike Masayama, Dan Smith's done a bit of work from a couple of them. Greg Minuskin. So there isn't many guys out there that haven't touched. Well, I don't have – I have many nibs touched by a lot of these great nib meisters. We need a nib meister here, Costa. Uh, I'm trying to get David to, to do it here. He's really, <laughs> he's really pushing me, you know. He's, he's uh, pushing me on. But uh, and, and then I discovered, obviously, um, you know, Fountain Pens Oceana and, you know, the, the, the pen show here, and I met, you know, people like Nick Gold, um, the crew out of Penn City, mm -hmm. Tufts, um, and I've been to Aesthetic Bay in Singapore. So, mm. you know, I, I go to pen stores anywhere I travel, and my wife finds it amusing, and um, <laughs> I'm really into it. Now, what do I collect? This mm -hmm. is the question. I use everything I collect, mm -hmm. but my, I, I love Japanese fine nibs, mm -hmm. 0.4 millimeter italic stubs, hybrids. Nakayas, couple of pilot. I've got an 845. I've got a couple of 51s from Binda, which are just unbelievable. Mont early Mont Blanc stuff from West Germany, 80s, early 90s. Some Schaefer PFMs. I love Yardo LED um, out of the UK. What else? I've got I've got the Pro Gear Sailors, obviously Platinums. So there's a bit of everything there, but everything gets used and rotated. I'm using a Pilot Decima at the moment which just came in, which I bought from Gourlay Pens. Ah, which colour did you get? I got the black. Yeah, now you had one when I met you, correct, down here in Melbourne? Uh, I did, actually. I had a champagne pink one, I think. That's it, and I held it and wrote with it, and I thought, wow. So you cost me $200-odd, Sharon. <laughs> I apologise. No, that's okay. <laughs> uh, just, just touching on, so with the pens, then I jumped on the ink. And I've amassed about 80-odd bottles. <laughs> I don't know how. So I'm really big on buying and using ink and, you know, showcasing it and trying to get David to get onto it. But, yeah, look, I was big on Diamond for a long time. I I know Andrew Gray who distributes distributes the, the stuff. I'm a good friend of Andrew's. Mm -hmm. so, good friend, Andrew. So yeah. that's uh, uh, Nip uh, Pensmith, yeah? Pen, uh, is Pensmith? Yeah, Pensmith. Yeah, Pensmith. And you're comfortable using the diamines in vintage pens, David? Uh, yeah, but not for very long. I I think they they can tend to be a little bit crusty. You yes. want to put it, they mm. get a bit crusty around the edges. So 
Yeah, I'll leave them in there for a while. There's some interesting colours, some lovely. I think there's a majestic colour that's really nice. Majestic blue. Majestic yeah. blue. Majestic and blue. And sapphires yes. are nice. It's, it's just a, I, I like the bottle as well. You know, it's just a nice old English ink. They do, they rebadged Ackerman ink. Is that correct, Sharon? Uh, Rumour has it, but um, I think the Ackermans are essentially a private label dye mine. Now, that's that's a pen store I would like to go to. Uh, Ackerman, it looks fantastic, doesn't it? Is it Holland? Yeah, yeah, it's in in Holland. No, not in Amsterdam, just out. Uh, Sharon, actually, I have a 1994 new old stock Parker International orange fine nib from Mr. Ackerman's personal collection. Yes. I was very fortunate. I jumped online and they had a 2010 commemorative pen that he did, they did with Parker. And I wrote an email saying, any chance I can score one of these? And the gentleman got back to me and he goes, um, that was sold out a long time ago. However, um, you know, we were corresponding via email and he saw that I was a big fan and he, um, got me something and I've got it. And that's with Mike Masayama at the moment, getting that made into an italic, but I've got one of those. So I'll show you next time we cross paths. Absolutely. Would love to see it. I, I think we, I went big into 51s at one stage, hugely. Uh, basically because my father used one and, uh, it's a great so, pen. It's a great Oh, it's a fantastic pen. And one of my grails was always the, the nine carat, uh, wavy line 51. And I searched and searched and it was always out of my reach, you know, $2,000 and above until my good old friend Brian came up with a, an engraved <laughs> one, which, you know, is not perfect, but it's, Two small letters, A-B, and it was within reach and I pounced. I thought, will I, won't I? You know, and that's what happens with me. You know, I spend big dollars on pens, but then when I get them, it's such a huge relief. <laughs> vertigo. Oh, vertigo. <laughs> I've been wanting a vertigo for a long time. And DuPont, then, for our listeners. And, sorry? For our listeners, that's a DuPont. Yes, DuPont. Vertigo. Yes. I wanted the... One of the extra large, but uh, actually, I, I was in New York and, and I came across one at uh, Dark Browns, and uh, I didn't buy it. The extra was, you know, it always escaped me. And then, then I, I think Costa beat me to the <laughs> beat me to a to a vertigo. Where did you get that vertigo from? I I was very fortunate. I I got a new old stock vertigo mints box papers everything untouched. From Novelli, Novelli oh, pens yeah. at an amazing price, which blew me away. And because um, I'm such a nice guy, I, <laughs> I flicked it over to yeah. David. Oh, yeah, which I managed to procure a certain uh, type of pen for him, and you know he handed the cash over to me here, and uh, and then he pulls out the Vertigo, and he said, "Well, what do you think about this, David? Uh, you've always wanted one, and I just..." Got it in my hand. I couldn't resist. So the money left his hand and went back into his hand. Minus a hundred dollars. So, like you see, I, I'm I'm still hooked. And is that the Vertigo One or the Vertigo Two? The Vertigo One. The Vertigo, the Vertigo one. one. The original one. The smaller one, the large. Yeah. But it was full, complete, new Ulster, and I couldn't believe Sharon the cost. I, I and I was shocked. Um, I don't know why they were selling it at that price. So I just jumped. 
And I got it, and I got oh, it. Because you're mates with Marco. That's well, why. I, that's <laughs> yeah. Some of our listeners know these people that we're talking about. I mean. We'll put links in the show notes to all of them. Oh, good. Beautiful. Right. Beautiful. Yeah. Marco's a lovely guy, by the way. Yes, I bought one of my first ever OMAS from Marco. It was wow. a um, royal blue celluloid, uh, the old style Paragon from the early 90s. Um, that was a stunning piece. I've got one. <laughs> of course I've, you do. I've got it in his pocket right now. Now you've got a saffron. No, I've got a saffron. Oh. I, I bought the blue royale from uh, John Modishaw. Yes, um, I've been fortunate enough to have a look at quite a few OMASs in the last few months, and uh, they are quite appealing. I don't know that I'll turn to them anytime soon, <laughs> but um, you, know, you can collect them and you'll get lost in that rabbit hole very quickly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'll be in Bologna soon too, I think, Sharon, so I'm hopefully going to scout some local little tobacconists that I know yes. there. And, oh, uh, I'm not a big OMAS fan. I have a couple, but I, I do see the beauty in them. And listening to your podcast with another Costa that I, yes. I know, I've never met the man, but his knowledge and his collectability of those pens, they are a stunning, they are a stunning yeah. instrument. I tell you, who's quite a big collector of, of OMAS. No, uh, Guido Stoltari. Oh, yes. Do you know Guido? Of course he I know Guido. Do you know Guido? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Guido's got an amazing collection, amazing, amazing. Here's a side note I saw today on my uh, Instagram feed, an Aurora Optima Arco Brown celluloid made by Newton Pens. Aurora Arco. So how is uh, is that an Aurora pen or is it uh... Uh, well, I'll, I'll... Uh, no, no, it's Aurora, not Omas, okay. but they've done an Arco Brown version, or Newton's done it, Newton Pence for this mm-hmm. customer. Okay. I'll send you, I'll send you the on Insta. I'll, I'll share with you the uh, oh. yeah, stunning pen. The you Arco know who put a, a lovely Arco on Instagram the other day. Allison, yes, uh, ink stain soprano, yes, yeah, she did a great, great uh, photograph. Mm-hmm. Lovely pen, and I think Nicholas has got one too. Hasn't Nicholas got more than one. <laughs> <laughs> Nicholas is probably listening. Oh, he will be anyway. Yes, he will. <laughs> so then in Melbourne, what's the pen community like? You know, you guys have known each other for 16 years. Have you seen some traction as of late? Um, were there previous meetups? Um, how did you guys get together and pen out? So I actually mentioned to David the other day, I've noticed in the last 24 months probably it is uh, – Gone, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I've met a lot more people, obviously through um, our Facebook page, you know, that you guys, the Oceana page, and through the pen shows and, and with Milligram opening up. I've met some, we've met some wonderful people, and I think it's, it's coming back in a big way. Um, where I was worried there for a while, we actually joked that two years ago at the pen show, David, I was helping David out and saying how he's dying, how, you know, like, and then all of a sudden it's gone the other way. So um, in terms of pen meets, like, well, we hang out, we scribble, we drink coffee, he drinks tea. When, um, we, when we finally get together. Yeah. Uh, we're going on Sunday here in Melbourne. There's a there's a meet um, where we met last time, Sharon, at mm, uh, yes. GI, I found yeah. out. So the usual suspects will be there. 
uh, with many others, I assume. So it's just wonderful. It's a wonderful community. Yeah. Everyone I have met is so friendly and so um, everyone wants to share their knowledge, which is really good, I think. Yeah. I, I started with actually John de Blasi introduced me to the uh, the pen and pencil eating club. Oh, is that what makes brownie? Yes, yes. <laughs> Sylvanas just uh, probably joined us within the last maybe three or five years. I, I try and get along there. I was pretty avid, you know, contributor and uh, go to those meetings on a Monday night at the the Tower Hotel in uh, Campbell, I think. Correct. It's still there. And that's that's where I started. And, you know, you would have some real – actually, what happened was, was this is what I believe, there were a number of people that were in a club that was started at Taft's, and it was John, Peter Ford, Perry. Uh, Perry was not involved, no. Um, uh, Peter Borgouts, a couple of other people that all started up a little pen club. And those, some of those people are not working anymore in the, in the industry. So I would have loved to have been in that club back in those days. And to be honest, to have been a collector in the, in the seventies. Wow. There must have been so much stuff around. What do you think uh, has changed since the seventies in terms of being in the fountain pen collecting space? I, I just think that. You know, the computer and internet and... I think the uh, internet's brought... Yeah. You know, getting getting back to that, I mean, before I had the internet, I, I would go out and buy uh, books on pen. That's how I started learning. I've got just about every book you can think of on, on fountain pen. You know, one being Fountain Pens of the World by Andreas Lambert. Great that's Andreas the, That's the book to have. Mm-hmm. And so both of you, in your collecting journey so far, what has been the most memorable experience or the most uh, memorable pen that you've acquired? Uh, you go first, uh, yeah, um, great question. It's funny, I go through stages. So along the journey, it would be a couple of pelican birds, I think. I think my first Nakaya in 2008 or nine. I think it was eight. I actually bought it directly from the guys in Tokyo Mm -hmm. and I called them and it was wonderful with broken English and I don't speak Japanese. And I ended up getting a, um, a a portable rider with a, a fine medium nib with a bit of kanji there with my name. And then I bought one, I bought a little piccolo. For my wife in the Heki area colour, is that how you say it? The yes. green brown. Yeah, I've got so I've got one of each with our names. So they were wonderful experiences. I've had a chance to travel in the last few years quite extensively and I, I do visit a lot of the pen stores that we all frequent online. Yeah, just picking up pieces, individual pieces, not going in there with the frame line of looking for something in particular. Yeah, but I think my favourite, if I have to say would be my West German Mont Blanc 146 mm-hmm. uh, from the 80s, which um, I don't know, just there's something about I'm not a big Mont Blanc fan, but that pen just works for me. And uh, that has been uh, Mr. Mike Masayama has worked on that for me also. So, yeah. I've got the same pen, West German, uh, single tone nib. Mm. Uh, Blue window. Blue window. Mine's also a fine, and it's just – the flow is just superb. As far as Mont Blanc goes, it's it's got a wonderful flow, and because of the ebonite feed, you know, I think that's that's the secret yeah. of, of a really good flying pen is the ebonite feeds, as in Omas, you know, um, Aurora. Yeah, Aurora. They got ebonites. Yeah, ebonite feeds. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Not really big into Aurora myself, but 
Yeah, look, one of my grails, uh, probably uh, I was really big into Conway Stewart at one stage there. I've got a fairly big collection of Conways and anything cracked ice, any number 22 floral, any of the uh, the Harlequin, not the Harlequin, the Marlboros. Uh, no, Marlboros are a, a newer thing. Let me see what they call. I can't remember now the name of it. But I so some of those Conway Stewarts and a Grail pen for me at the moment is uh, a Mont Blanc Proust that yeah, I've been wanting for a long time, and uh, I'm going to try and get Nick Golds off him. <laughs> Uh, he might not like that, but I'll, I'll get it off him one day. <laughs> because yeah, he 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 bought it off somebody that I that I know, and uh, if I had known, it would have been in my stable. <laughs> Sharon, you you've got the uh, Namiki Yukari, yeah. I have a few of them, yes. I think that's my grail at the moment. Like, I don't have one. I've, I've felt it. And being in Japan later this year, I'm mm-hmm. going to attempt to uh, acquire one. I did tell my wife I'll, I'll buy one pen. She oh. doesn't know the cost, of course, but... Um, <laughs> the Yukari or the Yukari Royale? The smaller version. The Yukari, right, okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I will hold both. And in the vermilion colour, I think, mm-hmm. I have an 845 from Tokyo Quill in a Waverly Mid Vermilion, which I, I love using. So that's probably going to be my next purchase, I think. I I do encourage you to try out the new Pilot Custom Urushi with the size 30 nib. It's a nib like you like no other. In my opinion, probably the best nib to have come out in recent years from any mass uh, mass manufacturer. Okay, yeah, definitely. We'll do that when I'm there. Pilot's a hundredth year this year too, so. Yeah, they're teasing us at the moment with what's coming out. Look, you Japanese guys are really dominating this conversation. I feel out of it. <laughs> well, I actually, I did have a question for you when you were mentioning Conway Stewart's, David. What do you think about how some of the old great brands have done in the modern day? So, you know, in the golden age of fountain pens, we were hearing great things about Conway Stewart, Swan, Parker, Waterman. I mean, they were the giant names. Nowadays, yeah, they don't usually come up in conversation, and it seems like there's been a pretty significant decline. Do you ever mourn the loss of that or do you think they might come back at some point what are your feelings around it Uh, i don't think they will because i've seen conway stewart really drop away from as in the availability of old conway stewart's here in australia i think they've just got they've sold it they've sold out they've they've run their race uh, it's very hard to find old Conway Stewarts now. And the new Conway Stewarts, is there any similarity between that? Yeah, look, I mean, as you know, I, I worked at Penn City for about six and a half years. There were a number of modern Conway Stewarts there, reincarnation into an, mm. into, a, into another company, brought through some beautiful pens. You know, there's the Nelson, there's uh, the Churchill, there's a number of pens that were gorgeous but even that's now disappearing as well there, there are people that specialize in conway stewards specifically in england you can still find a lot of old conway stewards there's in, an abundance out there yeah, in england but here i'm just not seeing them 
you know. Well, the internet makes the world your playground, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. So I think it was Conway Stewart. So Leo, who we spoke to in our last, in one of our previous uh, episodes, he showed me this picture of amazing filigree work from, ah, uh, no, they weren't Conway Stewart's. They were maybe Todd's, a whole oh. bunch of the fantastic metal works, engraved pens, and I've never seen anything like it before. Yes, one, one did a lot of engraved pens like that, and Waterman did as well. In the metal pens, and they were, you know, hand engraved. They were paisley. Or filigree. Filigree. But filigree is really, you know, there's two ways of looking at filigree. Overlay is another one. So you've got filigree over the top of a hard rubber pen, and Waterman did a lot of those oh. pens in the 1920s and uh, 1918, and, you know, they're, they're really very expensive. Now, what was that pen that I showed you the other day? We, it was... $24,000. Yeah. $24,000. <laughs> $24,000 it went for. Uh, oh, actually, it's on Go Pens. Okay. I'm going to have a look at what this pen is. A Cardinal Red Overlay. Cardinal. It's an eyedropper. Right. 24 grand they want for it. Gary wants 24,000 for it. And dare I ask what makes it worth 24 grand? Rarity, basically, and the size. It's a number 20, so it's got a number, a number 20 nib on it. So, you know, that's huge. It's a, it's a really, really big pen. And so tw the number 20 nibs are obviously quite a large size nib. Not commonly seen in vintage pens? No, the, any, anything in a number 20 in, in Waterman is, is, you know, you're looking at Grail stuff there. Well, what was the standard size nib? Probably a number 5 would have been standard or a number between number 2 and number 5. Yeah, these, these things are just super rare. And... You know, back in the 20s, it was a real status symbol to have a a, a big waterman in your a suit pocket, one on the outside, in your hanky pocket, you know. But the size of these pens are pretty comparable to a lot of the modern day, say, for instance, the Visconti Homo sapiens that we're seeing. No, they're not. Because they're not? You know, some of, some of the early pens in the 1920s were that expensive. You really had to be a wealthy person to, to be able to buy one. And the bigger the, the pen, the bigger the, the, pen. Bigger, the bigger the status. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's right. I'm looking at this, um, the Waterman one. Did you, did you, you sent me the link? Yeah, yeah, I sent you a link. We'll add a link in the show notes as well. I think it's, it's, it's catalogue number 83. It's got a sale on at the moment. Uh, 86, I think. 86, is it? Yes, 86. So it's, I think it's the first pen on mm -hmm. the, are you looking, you're looking at it? I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, gorgeous, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely gorgeous. Tell me, Sharon, are you a fan of the Yarrow lead? I am not personally, um, because I'm generally not a big fan of very heavy pens, aside from a couple of DuPonts, and I don't like pens that tarnish, so I can't deal with the silver. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I just love the history, the history of the brand and uh, the way they make them also by hand, especially the Victorian finish. I, uh, I don't actually know the, that history very well. It's not one that I've done a lot of looking into. Do you want to share a little bit about it? Yeah, uh, family owned uh, in Birmingham in the UK in the Silver Jewelry Quarter. Six employees, great-grandfather, then the grandfather, then the son, and today I think the nephew runs it. They still make everything by hand. A lot of their guys have been in there for 50-plus years. It has all the hallmarks mm. of the UK and the Euro European status and the silver used. 
stunning pens. I have a couple, you know, and for the value, the price, um, and yeah. the workmanship that goes into them. Yeah, I'll go along with that. They, they are probably, you'd be paying triple for a, a big German counterpart. What's the biggest pen in the Grand? The Viceroy? The Viceroy Grand, yeah, yeah. Victorian, all with the barley finish. Mm. Uh, beautiful wet nibs, and S.R.B.E. Brown has two uh, that he's reviewed uh, on, in his personal collection, and he, he speaks very highly of them. So, yeah, great pen. The standard isn't heavy at all. So it's something that um, even you would enjoy. But you're right, they do tarnish, so it's something that you'll have to have to um, polish up or use frequently to avoid the tarnish occurring. Yeah. And they, their ink is also very special. They, they have ink, which I believe, again, rumour has it that uh, our friends at Diamine may have a bit of a hand <laughs> in production. Right. And so while we are on the topic of inks, you said, uh, Costa, you have about 80 bottles of ink. Uh, you've got a bit of a ways to go before you hit at least my collection, and then there are a couple of others who have larger ones than me. Predominantly, what brand are you are, are you collecting at the moment, or have you accumulated? It's I, I have numerous – I'm a big fan of Sailor, like most of us. I think uh, lubrication and flow and density of colours and variety, there's always something there. Uh, Namiki inks, uh, or pilot, or Japanese, big fan of Jap. In saying that, I've got a lot of Diamine, a lot of Ackerman, Mont Blanc, Pelican, some of the old Pelican stuff, Omas. There isn't probably many brands except for the boutique Japanese ones that I don't have, but I'll be going there and the plan is to probably try and bring back as many as my wife allows me to. (laughs) I like a lot of the old Old ink bottle. You know, Pelican did a beautiful ink bottle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a, a diamond-shaped uh, Parker ink as well. It's a beautiful big bottle shaped like a diamond. A diamond one? I haven't seen a diamond one. Completely off, but I just mm. like the bottle. <laughs> I think that's part of the, the uniqueness is uh, a lot of the, as you would attest to, Sharon, and, our, and most of our listeners, the bottles. It's not only the ink, the bottles are, you know, there's something romantic about it is yeah. the nostalgia, you know. And, and, and the, the lips on the shape of bottles, you know. Costa and I are really big fans of, of snorkels and uh, and PFMs. PFMs, PFMs. You know, being, being the most complicated filling system that's around. Yeah, and so nowadays I don't think there's anything modern that, can, that does what a snorkel does. There isn't, no. Not that I know. I mean, no, I think doesn't Edison do, doesn't he do? Does he do something like that? I think, uh, I'm not yeah. too sure, but I haven't come across anything personally. Bruce no. might know about that. So I'm conscious of the time. What are we currently writing with? I am currently inked up with a, I have two in front of me. I have a Decimo Extra Fine with the Miki Black, mm-hmm. which I write a lot of numbers with. And I have an Otto Hutt uh, number four with a rounded nose cursive italic from Mr. Mike Masayama with Schaefer script red, which is the only ink I use in that pen. And it is a glorious steel nib and a more, one of my rare steel nibs because nearly all my pens are 14 or 18 carat. But like again, when you get a good nib meister that does some work, you can't really go wrong. And yeah, look, I mean, whenever doctor comes over here to my place, he always ribs me about the number of pens that I've got in the shape of tray. <laughs> <laughs> Just on my uh, wheel around computer, laptop table. So, I mean, I've got a PFM in here. I've got a... Inked with what? Uh, PFM? What? Are, it's not inked. It's not inked yet. But I, I plan to ink that 
two. I've got the Notto. Uh, I've got an old uh, Pelican. Uh, what number do we call that, Costa? 120? 120? Something like that. I've got a Parker a uh, flat top that's uh, most likely got Mont Blanc in it. I've got a, um, a Schaefer Lifetime, which is a, a lovely uh, red strated pen. I've got a 1,000 uh, Pelican, my 146 West German that I've got inked up. I've got a Tortoiseshell 800 with a, a broad italic nib on it. Wow. I've got a 400 with a uh, oblique board. I've got a Conway Stewart number 55. I've got a Mont Blanc. And this is all just on your desk? This yeah. is just on his desk in front of us Five. now. A fiber ball. And they're, they're, they're his daily use pens, yeah. Sharon. And I've got a number, 70, <laughs> number 72 Mont Blanc as well. So. And in your pocket? In my pocket, I've got my Omos Saffron. Inked with? Inked with Omos, of course. <laughs> and in the blue. I'm a real blue fan. I don't like black that much. Oh, I'm a big blue fan as well. I love blue ink. It's blue gorgeous. Mm. And Omas blue in particular is a fabulous colour, although it's not a very well-behaved ink. I agree with you, Sharon. Yeah. I found it didn't behave in a couple of pens that I used. It was a little bit too – it flowed too much, I thought. Yeah, I love a wet nib. Wow. It's got to be wet for me, otherwise it's not a fountain pen. <laughs> Fair enough statement. Alrighty. Uh, thank you so much, guys, for spending uh, your evening with me and uh, just chit-chatting pens. I have absolutely loved hearing about all of your experiences. And, yeah, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Uh, I just want to say thank you to you guys because it's like the nib section and, and the, the forum groups that, you know, keep this passion alive. And it's just great that there is a community out there and people getting together and talking all things pen and stationery and we look forward to the inaugural Sydney Pen Show. So good luck to you guys. We probably will be coming up I for think, the weekend. Yeah, I'll make the effort, I think. So, um, yeah, everyone that's listening, keep, keep going, you know. Let's, let's, let's keep the, the, the passion alive. That's awesome. And if we don't see you at the Sydney Pen Show, I'm sure a lot of us will be down in Melbourne for the Melbourne Pen Show. And, David, you're going to have a stand there? I'll be there again and... Yes. With my trusty uh, helper, Costa, you can help me again. <laughs> you both will yep. be there. All right. We'll be there, yeah. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, all right, Sharon. Thank you. All the best. Quick question because what I've got you. Sure. You've got a, you got a, how many bottles have you got now? You would have quite a couple, a few hundred, wouldn't you? 300 and something. David, wow. did you hear that? 300 and something bottles of ink. Bottles of ink. Oh, wow. I could probably give you an exact number if I pull up my... That's great. And, and do you tend to gravitate towards certain brands or colours or whatever? Do you, just, do you use Japanese ink in Japanese pens and European ink in European pens, or it doesn't matter to you? Uh, so I'm at 310 inks. Okay. Um, embarrassingly. <laughs> um, I tend to gravitate towards certain brands of inks. Um, so, for instance, if I want something a little bit wetter, I would go for a Japanese ink, like a Sailor. If I want something drier, I tend to go for a Pelican or a Graf von Faber-Castell. Um, I don't tend to run Sailor inks through Pelicans because I just think they gush a little bit too much. Um, and I find that certain inks, like the Pelican inks um, and the Mont Blanc inks, as well as the Graf von Faber-Castell inks, just work better in a Pelican, for instance. Whereas... In a Mont Blanc? What would you use in a Mont Blanc? Mont Blanc. 
I use Mont Blanc in a Mont Blanc. Because I've, I've heard a lot about the Groff von Faber. I've got a couple of bottles. I haven't opened them. They're they're nice. They're nice but dry. And I'm a, I prefer dry. Mm. I prefer dry. So, but in Japanese pen, in vintage pens, you wouldn't use Japanese ink. No way. No, I wouldn't use. Um, I wouldn't use it. They're too alkaline, aren't they? Yeah, and uh, they eat up the sacks. Yeah. It reminds me, have you ever come across a, a Parker Penman ink? Yes, uh, I used to own a couple. They also they also chew through sacks too, don't they? Yeah, they same thing. A friend of mine, Peter Hickman, who's big into vacuum ink, he, he says that it actually grows stalactites into your pen if you leave it in too long. Penman inks, wow. Thank you. Um, I know we dabbled, we went all over the place, but, you all know, good. we're just... True passionate people, you know. Yeah. Um, we'll leave uh, it to the editors. She's going to hate me. <laughs> thanks, Darren. Thank you, guys. Ciao, ciao. Bye. Okay. So we're going to talk repairs and restoration for a little bit. Now, I know for a fact that Tav and Max can talk about this. And Barry's just said that he's also, you know, he likes to pick up vintage pens to restore himself. But what kind of repairs are uh, do-it-yourself? Like, what, what can you conceivably do without having to send off to someone quite easily? I reckon filling system repairs most of them, unless it's a particularly convoluted one that requires also a lot of experience. Like some of the more complicated filling systems, like I would consider that the, the Schaefer touchdown filling systems are more complicated. I know that they are sort of, sort of considered an intermediate level of difficulty to repair, but I tend to just leave them to the experts because they are easy to muck up if you really don't know what you're doing. DIY, replacing the bladder in a lever fill pen, repairing a nib, and you know, if it's a bit misaligned or a little bit bent, smoothing it out a little bit, cleaning out the feed, if you need to remove the feed to give it a scrub with a toothbrush and a bit of detergent, maybe a little bit of a polish if the if the nib's got some caked on ink, those sorts of things. I, I would say that DIY work is conservative repairs like like the filling system and the and the nib but if it's something that like a, a crack if it's a complex filling system or if something's missing that needs to be perhaps machined new for the pen like if there's a, new, a part that needs to be manufactured um then i'd find that's uh, i would defer to a, a person who does that for a living mm. barry there, there's there anything that you uh you won't touch uh, for your repairs and restoration you tackle most of it. No, no, only do basic repairs. Only basic ones. And my philosophy now, if you're going to restore, because usually when you pick up an old pen, it's like an old card, it's dusty and sad. I think I take a less is more approach now. I don't over polish. I'm not trying to bring it back to showroom condition because frankly, it's days of being in the showroom are now gone. Be, be sympathetic. Make it look a little bit happier. Um, give it a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah, right, but not preferably not oh, yeah. in a bag. Um, you, you don't want to polish um, your grandma too much. No, I used to. Over, I used to heavily polish, like your fifteen grandma. years. Yeah. <laughs> again, you, again, you, you guys have very different philosophies. Fifteen years ago, I used to heavily polish and used to bring these pens up into this super, almost glass-like shine. And I think that that I regret that now. Just give them a light polish. Don't do too much. Hippocratic oaths. Do not appreciate harm. them for yeah. what they are. At the end of the day, they are they are old yeah, and they're, they're going to look old. And if you don't want them to look old, get a new pen. Yeah, like yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Max, uh, any anything to weigh in on? Uh, Re uh, polishing grandparents. <laughs> no, I don't polish my pens that much. And if I do, I'm using like a jeweler's cloth. I'm not using anything super mm. harsh. And yet um, you are silent on and, the grandparents. Yeah, no, not touching that one with the tenth of <laughs> Okay, this is definitely um, the weirdest episode I've ever been in. 
Yeah. Uh, I did my touchdown myself, and that was the second pen I resacked. But luckily for me, the O-ring in that was quite good. There is an O-ring that you may have to replace in it if it degrades. When I bought my Parker 45, the uh, gentleman who sold it to me had listed it as broken and it wouldn't write. And the main issue was that it didn't have any ink in it. And of course, it wasn't going to write. The converter it came with is totally functional, but I ended up swapping it out for a modern one because I don't like squeeze converters. I use a piston filler. That's my everyday calorie pen for work. A nice gold forty-five. Yeah, I, I tend to keep my pen maintenance as simple as it can be, as the other two hosts have said, and mainly stick to stuff that is easy to do and is mainly focused on getting things functional before anything aesthetic happens. So you guys all have some experience in at least selecting and repairing the pens that you buy, but if someone has absolutely no experience, mm. reblattering a pen, re- restoring, re- replacing a bladder. I, I don't know what the technical term is. Re-sacking. Re-sacking. Yeah. Re- um, That's re- a whole different thing. You should talk about that with your GP. Mm, mm, yeah. Um, Go see a urologist about that. So resacking a pen, that requires materials mm. and equipment mm. that you wouldn't have lying around the house, right? No. So unless I think you're willing to actually learn how to do that, is there YouTube videos Definitely. that you can recommend? that can teach you how to do it? Is that something that you you think can be learnt off a YouTube video? Uh, I actually didn't learn it off a video. I learned it off uh, Richard Binder's website. He's got a series of photos, basically, on just on what to do. And I remember, I actually remember what I was doing when I learned it because I was, I, was, I was actually playing Team Fortress. It was years ago. I was playing Team Fortress and I was sort of alt-tabbing between, between matches, alt-tabbing between that and Richard Binder's website. And it was just sort of learning by osmosis. The what do you play, Tav? I need to know. Not me. Yeah. Uh, medic main. What are you talking about? There you go. Yeah. Okay. Are you really surprised? To, I just needed the Medic know. heavy. I'm always. writing the word re-blattering because I don't want to lose it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, resacking a pen is not a particularly difficult task unless, mm. you know, barring exceptional circumstances. I, I have had something happen once where uh, a sack had deteriorated to the point where it became like kind of like chewing gum in the barrel and it was really awful and it got stuck in there. So, I had to use these these surgical tools to get it out and most restoration specialists will have those tools to get them out. I just happened to get them from a lovely member of FPO, uh, Sinoni, who happened to come across some disposed of surgical equipment that was quite clean still, so it was okay to use. You do um, not want to casually be looking for disposed yeah, of no, surgical Yeah, no, no, don't, don't, don't look for that. But I mean, look, I'm sure you can find that, that sort of stuff. go brooding in the bins you'll find it. outside a hospital. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, don't go dumpster diving outside hospitals, guys, please. Yeah, I mean, you, can, you can find this stuff at, on, on eBay, I'm sure. But in, in, anyway, look, a basic re-blattering, I'm going to call it that from now on because it's hilarious. <laughs> A basic resacking, it should, it actually won't take that long, but uh, assuming the, the sack hasn't turned to, to, to goo, you, you take the pen apart, you take the old sack out, clean it up a little bit, apply some uh, sack cement, which is kind of like a, it's a shellac based adhesive, similar, kind of similar to nail polish. Don't use nail polish. I've heard people recommend that. Don't use nail polish. And, um, apply the new sack to it and let it dry for a little, for, you know, let it dry overnight. That's pretty much it. It's, it's, it's quite a, it seems daunting. But I think one of the things is just trust yourself. It's it's not as daunting as it would seem to be. Okay. Well, so we've you've touched on um, additional resources uh, about learn, learning how to with um, Richard Binder's website. Dan has mentioned YouTube videos. Uh, did uh, Max or Barry feel free to chime in? Did you guys learn in um, any other way, or were, were those your 
your key methods? I used uh, Binder's website and uh, David Nishimura's website, vintagepens.whatever it is. Oh. And they were, they were pretty helpful. But uh, the Binder tutorial, second second recommendation for that. Barry, that was you? Uh, the Binder's website didn't exist when I started, which was like 1999 or something or 2000. But I would recommend buy a vintage repair book. In fact, buy two because yeah. there's two very good ones. In um, case you need to repair the first book. <laughs> <laughs> now, that would be a vintage repair book. Repair book, book yeah. yeah. The one that I started off with, which I think is still kicking around, is was a book written by Frank Dubiel. And and he's, he's passed away now. But I still think it's the kind of Bible of vintage repairs. Buy that. It's, it's actually a very fun read. Then buy the basics that you need to repair. So you're going to need a whole box of ink sacks, which come in various sizes, buy all of them, buy the shellac, that's the glue that glues the ink sack on, buy a box of repair tools. I think you can actually buy a box online that has pretty much all your basic repair tools in the box, and so off you go. I think repairing is actually fun. The second book was written by, I don't know, it's in colour, unlike Frank de Beals, which is black and white. So we'll, we'll uh, if you do remember, we'll uh, include it in our you know, show notes mm. uh, as necessary. But um, I found I found this uh, episode very enlightening, especially as uh, most of my pens are very modern and uh, brand new. So this has been uh, a lot. I'm, I'm not likely to go and get a repair kit anytime no. soon, but I no, know that no. I can if I, I may, wanted to. <laughs> I may buy a repair book, repair book, though. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, all right. So before we move on to the next section, who would you uh, entrust your pens to if this was a repair that was beyond your ken? Uh, Tev, who would you, uh, being that you're, you're someone that's worked on a couple of nibs for me, um, I'm curious to see who you would send yours to. That's a good question, actually. Um, I've not sent a whole lot of vintage pens off. And uh, there have been times where I've sent them off and not received satisfactory results. Mm. And have then had to fix them up myself. Uh, I'm not, I'm, I don't think I need to warn people off. I don't think it's like a systematic problem with the particular repairers. I just don't think I'd particularly recommend these people again. I will say that I ha- I've had good results with John Mottishaw, although his wait times are very, very, very long unless you pay extra. Mike Masuyama is very good. And also probably one of the people I'd trust most with a vintage pen would be David Nishimura. He's uh, one of the sort of the, the big names in vintage pens. He knows He's one of the people that just knows pretty much everything there is to mm. know about vintages. Mm. Um, another person is Ron Zorn. He's very good at um, repairs, uh, unusual repairs, such as crack repair. So if you've got a vintage celluloid pen that's got a crack in the cap, he might be able to actually repair that crack. So, yeah, so he's quite good as well. Most of them are based in the United States. Okay. What about you, Barry? Who's your uh, pick for more than your, your capabilities? I always understood Ron Zorn to be the grand poobah of pen repairs and he's he's your top man there you go max have you uh you sent anything to anyone or have you been um tooling around yourself i've sent my my schaefer balance off to jerry berg he is uh Mm -hmm. the king of schaefer and only schaefer vac fillers i asked him to do an anoto plunger filler and i asked him to do a wallop sharp doric and he would not service either of those Mm -hmm. Other people, Oscar the Penthusiast, Oscar Rodriguez of um, Pay It Forward and BYOB Pen Club, does uh, repairs on stream on YouTube now, and he's a lovely, lovely bloke. And uh, I've never sent anything to him, but I've seen his work, and I do, I really like his um, his work, and he'll work on quite a lot of interesting and new stuff. Uh, and Stacey Hills, that's Mr. Stacey Hills of Paper Wants a Pen on Instagram, 
He also is a vac filler specialist who I've never sent anything to, but his work looks amazing on Instagram. Paper wants a pen. We're going to have to look at that while we yep. get to our last section, which is the recommendation section. Now, um, each of us is going to give a recommendation. Uh, it doesn't have to be pen or paper related, but just something that uh, we enjoy. Go in reverse. Let's start with you, Max. I've, I've had you at the, uh, the end of a lot of our, our panels. So let's, <laughs> let's start with you. Um, I'm going to recommend something courtesy of Father Kyle Sanders on uh, Colonel for God on Instagram, who uh, sent a box of pencils, especially pencils, my way. Um, as I'm now doing a lot of drawing for my uh, TAFE class, I have been using pencils a lot. And writing with something that's not a fountain pen has, uh, has been interesting and challenging, but fun. So uh, I recommend the Blackwing 602. Go. What about you, Barry? I would recommend if you've gone to buy one vintage pen and you're new to the hobby, Buy a 1920s Parker Jewelfold. Simple as that. Okay. That's the, that's the main pick. I would like to recommend a breakfast dish that I ordered so frequently from a local cafe that it was added to the specials menu as the Chuck's Benedict. Uh, it is as <laughs> follows. Order an eggs Benedict. Uh, ham is preferred. Take the English muffins, which are pleasant, but add nothing, like a Jason Sudeikis, and replace them with hash browns, which is like replacing a Jason Sudeikis with Will Arnett. Boom. Chuck's Benedict. After you have one of those, a regular eggs Benedict will look like an odd substitute, like a Dylan McDermott to a David Duchovny. <laughs> I have had this recommendation written down ever since Joanne recommended her uh, Turkish Delight Arrowroot Sandwich, uh, and I stand by this one. If you're going to have an Eggs Benedict, just go the whole way. Ditch the muffin, have a hash brown. Where can I find a Chuck's Benedict? Oh, that cafe has closed for making uh, bad decisions, uh, you know. Uh, this, which I'm sure was not the first or the last, but wow. uh, I stand behind this one. If there are any cafes out there who are listening, if you... Bring this in, let us know, and we'll give you a plug. Oh, I'll plug. I'll, I'll you plug. Trademark that name. The Chuck's Benedict. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's this. It seems like there's some hubris there. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, not at all. What are you talking about? <laughs> Your cafe out of business. Yeah, yeah. I'll, uh, you know, that's that's really just a cautionary tale more than anything. This this is more for the consumers <laughs> than it is for the providers. <laughs> uh, Tab, have you uh, thought of a recommendation? Well, on the subject of breakfast, <laughs> this is sort of on the other end of the spectrum. If you want to, if you want something a little wholesome and healthy, I'd recommend having kefir with your with your cereal instead of milk. It's a, it's kind of like a yogurt drink, but it's made with a slightly different like culture a bacterial and yeast culture tastes tastes a bit unusual uh kind of like yogurt but a bit kind of creamier it's often quite low fat very healthy for you and um it's one of the few things that's not really been pasteurized or had all the bacteria in it killed off to make it you know to make it seem safer to eat so it's it's actually really good for your insides um uh probably not a great idea no does it help with rebladdering <laughs> that's um, probably, yeah. That's probably cranberries that help yeah. with oh, rebladdering. Yeah. There's, there's urul sachets, yeah, for those sachets as well. Yeah, don't. Okay, PSA: don't flush your pens with urul. Yeah, even if you're having bladder trouble with your pens. But yeah, so so kefir is it's fantastic. And and for those of you that don't drink milk, there's I think coconut kefir as well, which is just as good for you. There we oh. go. All right, dye screwing her face up. But hey, 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 hey. There's no accounting for taste. Okay? All right. Well, if they, if they, like, if they like coconut then that's their problem. I have uh, uh, really... Look, I'm not going to get into all the coconut water drinks that I go. I'll leave that for <laughs> later as an anti-wreck. But I would like to thank the hosts. Uh, thank you, Max, for joining us uh, through the tubes. Good to be here. Hope right. to be on again soon. Thank you, Barry, for joining us. 
Thanks. Uh, I think this is the first time. Mm. I'm sure we'll have you on again another time. Tab, thanks for joining us again. You're very welcome, and thank you for having me. Uh, and uh, my name is Chuck Montano. Uh, until next time, listeners, ink well. Future episodes of this podcast can be found at thenibsection.com and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hop on iTunes, rate us, review us, recommend us to your friends. Want to share your thoughts, suggestions, feedback? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thenibsection at gmail.com. You can also comment at us on the Nib Section Facebook page or at the Nib Section on Twitter and Instagram. The Nib Section is the official podcast of Fountain Pens Oceania. Our producers this episode were Diana Dyer, Chuck Montano, Patrick Antolovich, Nice Tang, and Sharon Zah. Recording and editing was done by Patrick Antolovich. Tolovich and Denise Tang. Our music was composed by Michael Pierce. Our logo was designed by Will H. Smith with artwork by Melissa Graff. Thank you for listening. 